In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to this, the 49th episode of Scottish Blether with Liz Lister and I'm Helen Houston. And this week we're going to talk about one of the Scotland's famous authors, Sir Walter Scott. Now, the reason we're speaking about Sir Walter Scott, that August marks the 250th anniversary of his birth. And he was at one time the most famous writer in the world, Sir Walter Scott. So he didn't publish his writings until he was 34. And that was poetry. And then he went on to his books 10 years later. But incredibly prolific, and I'm sure that most of you will have have read or seen films based on his work. And he's even been credited with playing a significant part in the beginning of Scottish tourism. So, Liz, what what do you know of Sir Walter Scott and his early years? Well, I always think of him as a sort of latter-day Diana Gabaldon because he did much to bring about Scottish tourism, as you said, just like she's doing with her Outlander series. But unlike Diana Gabaldon, where when you talk to people who've actually read or or watched the series on television, um, Scott has this phenomenal reputation in Scotland. I mean, we have the Scott Monument sitting on Princess Street and all its glory is the largest memorial to any writer anywhere in the world. And we have, of course, our major railway station called Waverley after his first novels. But when you actually ask people, have you read Sir Walter Scott? Some people have read them. Um, Rob Roy, for example, was used in schools. But few people seem to actually have read him out of choice, um, myself included. I mean, when you try to get into it, it's very archaic, long-winded. It's not exactly your riveting. As you say, films are a much better conversion of, of his work. Yeah. And and Liz, I totally agree with you. I find that, you know, you're reading it and his sentence starts at the top of one page and three pages later, it feels like it finishes. The sentence finishes and you've lost the thread. But I think, Liz, that possibly because now nowadays we're very much into speed reading. You know, we pick up a book and we can sort of scan, read, speed read. And I think in the days that he was writing in the sort of the early, very early 1800s, late 17, early 1800s, that people were reading at leisure and they would sit with a book 
and spend two or three hours just sitting quietly reading. And they probably could read at the pace that we listen to it now. I've started re-reading, in inverted commas, his books by putting them onto Audible and, and hearing them, listening to somebody, reading them. And that is so much better, Liz. It's really, you can understand his his language so much easier. Yeah, I think that's definitely a very good idea, Helen. But I also think it's important to place his work in the context of the time that he was writing, because he was writing a generation after the uprising of the Jacobites, the supporters of the Stuart dynasty against the House of Hanover. And so it was within living memory. You know, people were still talking about it. And this was a divided Britain, but in particular, a divided Scotland. It was divided between highlands and lowlands in terms of the culture, in terms of Protestant and Catholic, economic divisions, religious divisions. Um, so a very divided country which was trying to unite again, but uniting under the successful Hanoverians. And also it was the time where across Europe, revolution was in the air. So, you know, he was being influenced by all these factors happening at, at the time of um, his writing. Yeah, and apparently that one of the frequent visitors to George at their house in George Square, when he was still very young, was a, a Jacobite who'd actually fought at Culloden. Now, he must be very old, and Sir Walter Scott was very young. But um, I think Sir Walter Scott loved listening to the tales, and possibly at heart he was a Jacobite, but in his head he was a Unionist. He knew that the Union was here, the Hanoverians were here, and in his head he knew that was the way forward. Yeah, I think for me that's one of the quotes that, that best sums him up. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think he's a character that you like very much, but I think it's important to take a look back, first of all, at his early life and how his career developed and at the forces that influenced him in his writing. So going right back, it's said of his writing that he was a born storyteller, but he combines two different loves, his love of history and his love of literature. And that, both of those passions came from his early upbringing, where he spent a lot of his time in the borders at the home of his, his paternal grandmother. Yeah, and, and it was there that, because of course the history was an, it was an oral tradition at that time, that he was listening to tales being passed down in that kind of rural community in the borders, and he was picking up a lot. And of course it was through his mother that you heard her sort of line, if you like, that it gave him the right to be buried at Dryburgh Abbey, which was a very big thing. You couldn't just be there. So he he had the right through his mother. His mother and father were both borderers. Yeah, his father was what was called a writer to the signet. That was a solicitor, a person who was able to use the royal seal. So he was very successful as a solicitor in Edinburgh, so they were very much upper class. But his father had been a successful border sheep farmer. 
and Sir Walter Scott's father married the daughter of a professor of physiology at the University of Edinburgh. So very well-to-do family. But early on, just um, as he was, he was a healthy baby, but within almost a year, he had developed polio, poliomyelitis. And of course, in those days, they didn't know what polio was, but they didn't know how to treat it. And so he got the best of medical treatment because of his mother's connections. But the recommendation was to move him to the clean air of the borders, to his family home at Sandy Now in Roxburghshire. And of course, there it was his grandmother and his aunt Jenny, Janet, or Jenny. Um, and so he had their complete attention while he was there. And they, if you think about it, thinking the days before television or videos or anything like that, videos, I'm showing my age here, sorry, um, <laughs> streaming, live streaming, Netflix, all the rest of it, what they would do of an evening was to sit around the fire telling stories, singing songs. And he was absolutely in his element listening to all these songs. Talking about Aunt Jen, there was the story of uh, when he was sent to Sandy Now Farm, his mother sent a maid with him to really sort of dance on his all his attention that you were know, to take it up. But this maid had met in Edinburgh a young man, and this maid was really a little bit annoyed at being sent to the borders away from her young man. So the story goes that she actually became obsessed with with young Walter that you know she hated him and so she took him up into the hills and with the with the sole purpose of killing him but she came back down she didn't she came back down and she sort of admitted to Aunt Jen and Aunt Jen really told her what for and she was dismissed but Sir Walter Scott was in danger because of a boyfriend yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem to always engender um, people's affection, but certainly he got it from his from his grandmother and his aunt Jenny. And so he spent um, much of his early childhood between 1773 and 1778 down in the borders with his grandmother and his aunt. And when he did come back to George Square, where the family had this new house and the, the new town, one of the first to be built in George Square area of the original new town of Edinburgh, he didn't take well to it because, of course, he had lots of siblings at home, brothers and sisters. And although he got much better and he did recover his health, they did a lot of kind of physiotherapy on his leg. But he was always lame. His right leg was always shorter than his left. And when he came back and he was in the company of his fit, healthy siblings, he took it ill out. And um, he said that he felt his inferiority there. So um, he much preferred to be down in the borders. Yes, and to, and to compensate for his short leg, he had always wore one shoe that was built up so that to kind of give him the, the two legs about the same height. And there's his rocking horse, his childhood rocking horse. Uh, one of the stirrups actually has a built up bit on it so that you know, he could sit on his rocking horse quite comfortably. But notwithstanding his disability in his in his lameness, he became a real walker. He used to walk for miles. And his father always said to him, when you're walking out, just walk as far as you know you can get back home in daylight. 
Yeah, he certainly, he was, a, I, when you think of him, you tend to think of him as a small man, shriveled, a bad limp, but he was actually a really good physical specimen. He was tall, stout, well built. So not that, not perhaps the image. And he was also a man for the ladies. I always think of him a bit like Alexander Hamilton, uh, you know, that he was a, a man for the ladies and quite a few romantic encounters. Yes, I think that he was hard done by by one lady and then he fell in love very quickly thereafter, didn't he, with the, the lady who became his wife? Yeah, I think it was the case of he was spurned, right? And he made a lot of it himself, that he had an unsuccessful love suit with Wilhelmina Belshi of Fetter Cairn up in northeast Scotland. And he plied his troth and she wrote back to him a highly flattering and favourable letter. But eventually she just asked him to wait and she met somebody who was a much better catch, a man called William Forbes. And he was a close friend of, of um, Scott, but he was also one of Scotland's wealthiest bankers. And so his mother, her mother, much preferred him. And so poor old um, Sir Walter Scott or Walter Scott at that time got the heave ho and he took it badly. So he was he was unhappy for a while. But just eight months later, he was away with pals down in the Lake District in Cumbria, a spa, and he met a woman called Margaret Charlotte Carpentier or Carpenter, as she was called in, in Britain. She was French. She came from a French background. And, you know, people always say that she was sort of on the rebound. But I think she was quite a girl. She could look after herself. Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, they corresponded for a while and um, her letters were boisterous and teasing. I think there was a strong physical attraction there. So after just three weeks, he asked her to marry him. Yeah, yeah. And then they were married on Christmas Eve in 1797 in Carlisle. Yeah. Yeah, and his father, his mother and father were not at all pleased about that because they didn't know anything about her, and neither did he. Um, it turned out that she had quite a racy mother, but as a result of, of that mother, she had been made the ward of um, an aristocrat down in, uh, down in England, the Marquis of Downshire. And so she wasn't entirely penniless, and uh, she did have a, a quite a good income from her brother who was out in India. So um, eventually her parents, his parents were considered that she was um, she was of the correct social standing. But he didn't marry her for her property or for her land or for her money. He married her out of genuine love and a woman who intellectually he was also very attracted to. Yeah, and, and I think that you for a while they were very happy. They were very happy and they eventually went on to have five children, four of whom survived into adulthood and were still surviving uh, when their father died. But, you know, at first he didn't really need to do too much on his writings because he was making a decent living as a lawyer and his salary his salaries as chair of depute. But he's also his wife's income contributed that. So, so the income that you talked about was very important. And he had some revenue from his writings, but it wasn't the be all and all end all at that time in the early days. Yeah, I think we should explain there for listeners who might not understand what a sheriff is and have a completely different idea. A sheriff in Scotland is the principal judge in a Scottish county. So after um, after Scott returns to Edinburgh, he went to school at the Royal High School in Edinburgh, where which was very, very important in his life because it was there that he met 
the movers and shakers of the future, the people who would be his patrons, who would buy his books and be his chief audience. So not just in learning, but in social connections. And these were to be so important in the period that Scott was writing. So he went to school at the Royal High School and he went to work as an apprentice to his father. His father was a, a, a solicitor and he went to work with him. It was boring, boring work. Yes, and it was it's quite interesting because he was very young because he went to university at age 12 and then he was apprenticed to his father at age 14. So he's very young. But there's a lovely quote out of one of Scott's novels called Red Gauntlet, where he describes these. You could just imagine the the office with all these young sort of clerks and writers just sitting there. Remember, they sat at these high benches on stools and they're sitting there in Red Gauntlet. Scott describes the daily jaunt from the law office to John's coffee shop nearby for the Meridian. And the Meridian was a bumper dram of brandy taken at midday, hence the name Meridian. So one of the quotes from Red Gauntlet says, the writers and clerks might seem to turn fidgety about the hour of noon until someone assumed the honour of leading the band threading the crowd like a string of wildfowl into the coffee house for the meridian. Although they did not speak to each other, they seemed to attach a certain degree of sociability to performing the ceremony in company. I think that's lovely. I could just see them threading their way through the crowds in Edinburgh to the coffee shop. Yeah, so yeah, he, he was turning to the drink already even <laughs> at a young age, but um, both because he was so bored by the dry and barren wilderness of forms and conveyances, but also probably because his father saw that he was capable of better, they decided that he would become an advocate, which was a stage up from that's kind of that's the Scottish equivalent of a barrister. So he went back to university. But this time when he went back, this was the time of all the clubs and societies that you're talking about there, Helen. And he was very involved in the literary society in Edinburgh, where they would meet in the Masonic Lodge in Carubbers Close and then retire to an oyster bar. So this was where he was meeting the great thinkers of the Enlightenment um, at the time. And he was a great thinker himself. Um, and so he qualified and he became an advocate in 1792. And then he started a successful career in law in Edinburgh. But he lost his first case. Um, that was defending a drunken minister before the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. So from there, he went on to greater things. Yeah, he just he just went on and he started writing you know, from an early age. And when he was still at school, he became a great storyteller and raconteur. So the, you mentioned the audience that he was kind of building up while at school. Well, he used to gather a huge collection of the boys round about him. And he, he said, on the whole, I'm, I made a brighter figure in the yards than in the class. He wasn't, he didn't suggest he was very bright in class, but we know he was. But in the yards, which was the playground, he would gather around the, the group of people. And there's one other quote, which I can't remember off, offhand, but basically he says that, you know, that these people were, as he said, sort of, he used to help them with their homework. He said, kind of dull of mind, but very loyal and attentive. And then he goes on to say, the sort of people that help people to rise from obscurity to become heroes. I think he was saying that they were helping him become the famous author he was. 
Yeah. So things were ticking along quite nice for him. He'd got established himself in a, a decent profession. He was making a good living. He had a happy marriage. And most importantly, he was um, he was meeting the right people. Um, he had the right connections for his success. So, so things were going well. But when we think of law today, we tend to think of it as being in court and, you know, as a barrister and, uh, you know, being very eloquent in arguing your case. But in his day, the greater part of the criminal process was conducted in writing. So he was well used to doing great, long written submissions and script, just word after word after word. And so although he was sheriff down or, or deputy sheriff down in the borders, he found a lot of time on his hands and his mind began to go back to his greatest passions, his history and his writing. And he began to collect the border ballads together and put them together in a written work. Yes, he was. And then he started, he started writing, writing poems, all these stories that he'd heard from the oral tradition, he started weaving them into the stories. And his first narrative poem was called The Lay of the Last Minstrel. And he was able to draw on his familiarity with the border history and the legends that he'd learned in his childhood. And he presented this great picture of 16th century Scotland, which totally captivated the public. This was his very first narrative poem. And the most celebrated lines being, which every Scots person knows, and if you've been to Edinburgh Tattoo, you will know it. Breathe, Sarah man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. Yeah, the patriotism coming through there, you know, it's so infectious. Oh, totally screaming out there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the quotes that I always remember, because it was a shortbread tin at my grand's house that she kept all her needles and pins and everything is, was, oh, a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I remember that one often. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's interesting. That one, Liz, I'm sure many people, many of our listeners use that and say that. Um, not realising it's a quote of Sir Walter Scott. Exactly, yeah. So he was combining these two passions. I mean, all through his life, he was a collector. He had a tremendous memory. He could recite. He just needed to hear something once and he could recite it. I mean, I think this was learned at the, the knee of his Aunt Jenny when she was reciting all these border ballads and poetry and songs to him. So that he, he collected songs and ballads, but he also collected artefacts as well. He was a great antiquarian. So he had a, a huge interest in history. And the two, the literary interest and the history, he combined in his work. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the things, and I think some of our, our listeners will have you know heard me when I talked about Andrew Carnegie, when the new Abbey Church was being built in Dunfermline Abbey in the 1820, 1818s, um, Sir Walter Scott apparently visited the old Abbey and he realized that all this wonderful wood and pulpit that was in the old nave would no longer be required. So he said oh, I'll take these from you. And so if you go down to his house at Abbotsford, lining the walls of the entrance hall is the, the wood panelling from the Dunfermline Abbey. So these were the things he picked up. It wasn't just little knickknacks. It was big things that he was picking up to furnish his home. Yeah. 
And so and as, as he started his long narrative poems, he was using a new technique um, so that he was writing it as the narrator. And then sometimes he would have the characters coming back in their local dialect, their Scots. So one of the things he was credited with was that it was giving ordinary people a voice. In literature up until that time, it was just the powerful that had the voice. But he used dialect and characters in a way that brought Scotland to life for many people. Yeah, and of course, being a lawyer, Liz, he really wasn't able to um, have a second string to his bow. So he published, most of his writing was published under his, just the name, the author of Waverley, anonymously. Yeah, that was when he came on to write his novels. I mean, when he was writing poetry, poetry was acceptable. It was acceptable for a man to be writing poetry. But for some reason, he changed from poetry to um, novels and he decided that he would publish his novels anonymously. And there are a variety of reasons why it's suggested he moved from poetry to novels Yes, one of the one of the ones that I think is a really nice one is that Lord Byron, the the poet from England, was rising up through the popularity stakes and writing wonderful poetry, and Lord Byron had the the look a much a much better look of a poet. If you look at any pictures of Lord Byron, it's a very romantic, staring into middle distance look, and. He also had the, the background. He was, after all, Lord Byron. He was aristocratic. So Sir Walter Scott felt that you know, he could not achieve that because he didn't have the background. So he was losing in the ranks. He was no longer number one narrative poet. Lord Byron had taken that. So my, my take on his turning to novels was he was pitout by Lord Byron <laughs> and um, decided... I'll show you. I'll write a book. <laughs> yeah. But even at first, you know, the people that read his book, the first one, The Waverley, it was people criticised it, you know, when he just gave it to them to read long before it was published. And they said it was very wordy. It was, you know, archaic, archaic technique that he was using. And above all else, it had far too many historical references. I mean, what he tried to do was both a scholar and a writer. And so he was putting in all of these great long historical references. So people at first dissuaded him from becoming a novelist. And one of the other, some of the other reasons that are given for it being published anonymously is that he himself said that it just amused him to do it that way. You know, it was just something that gave him pleasure. But it was also what was the way of the time. That's what people did. And another reason that he gave was that as a poet, he was very popular. So everywhere he went, he was overcrowded with all these people fawning all over him. So he liked being mysterious. And so those are we don't really know why he chose to write anonymously, because it was an open secret right from the very beginning that the, the, these novels were being written by Sir Walter Scott, the poet. Yes, and it was it was Catherine Sinclair, who also was an author in Edinburgh, but also did a lot of good charitable work that she sort of outed him at a at a book, so they say, at a book reading. But she said, look, come on, you are the author. Just put your name to the books. 
Yeah, he never did, though. He never put his name on any title page. And even when he was writing it, I mean, this going back to his days as, you know, his his career in law, where he just wrote these long scribes. Um, all he did was to just write and write and write. There was only white paper down the margin of the pages. So he would just write and write. And then in the morning, he would get up, he would reread it, he would correct it, and then he would send it to his publisher. And his publisher was also his critic as well. And he would make the corrections. He would also put in the punctuation because Sir Walter Scott didn't even bother to punctuate his work. And so out of this, they managed to bring together novels that become famous as the Waverley novels. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the Waverley novels, I, I have to put my hands up, Liz. I have not read them for the very reasons I gave earlier. I find them quite difficult to read, but I will have them on my Audible books and listen into them. Yeah, and of course, we think of it as being Scottish novels, because the first nine that he wrote, he was drawing on his experience of Scotland and his border ballads and all the rest of it. But only nine out of 27 novels were actually based in Scotland, because he went on then realising that the bulk of the people who were buying his work were in England. He went on then to develop things like Ivanhoe, Jacobean, Elizabethan so different eras that he was writing from and he would do all his research just as diligently for those novels. Yes, because apparently he looked at all the many of the Elizabethan and Jacobean dramas that had already been written to find out just how people spoke, what they said. So to change from what was kind of in his bones, the Scottish culture, to something like Ivanhoe, he was giving himself a huge amount of work in terms of research. Yeah, Ivanhoe is probably his best known work because a lot of people used it for books in school. And of course, the film as well has brought him fame from that. But a lot of his books, medieval settings, 12th century England. And of course, he also wrote a very famous biography of, of Napoleon. Yeah, and also, he also wrote things, you know, a huge, diverse range from, you know, historical biographies and novels through to a work on demonology and witchcraft. You know, just his interest was so wide that and his interest in writing and his ability to write, he just wrote about everything within his wide range of interest. Yeah, it was said that the characters and the themes that he was using, it didn't matter what age they were set in. These were common themes that people could identify with. And if you think that the time that he was writing was the great era of romance, you know, he was setting these these stories that captivated people with their characters. He was setting them in these romantic locations, the Trossachs for the Lady of the Lake and the Highlands with the Jacobites and, and, and medieval England as well. So it was this combination of the setting and the character that I think gave him his, his pop, huge popularity, particularly with the readers, often not so much with the critics, who could often be very harsh in assessing his work, but the readers certainly liked it. And if you if you look at his novels, he seemed to be absolutely fascinated by sort of striking moments of transition uh, between different stages in society. For example, in the Waverley novels, the hero is captivated by the romantic allure of the Jacobite cause embodied in Bonnie Prince Charlie. And then as the novels progress, he seems to be moving more towards the the Hanoverian branch, the more kind of mature or rational, if per, perhaps humdrum branch of Hanoverianism. So these are the things that really fascinated 
Sir Walter Scott, and I suppose he could take a much sort of almost like a helicopter view and see what had happening was happening in society. Yeah, and I think this is where, as he began to reach his pinnacle as a writer, he was very much at the heart of society in Scotland and indeed Britain, and his politics became he was a staunch Tory. Um, he was very much against political reform and the radical movement, um, very outspoken. And I think that's where he lost a lot of popularity in Scotland, but gained it in Britain. And so he became a great favourite of the Prince Regent, um, who was a great admirer of his work. Oh, yes. I'm smiling because I still see these pictures of Sir Walter Scott arranging the great big sort of arrival of when the Prince Regent became George the Fourth, his arrival into into Scotland wearing the kilt. He was a great organiser of events, Sir Walter Scott. And I think he only had something like three weeks to arrange the, for the arrival of George the Fourth into Edinburgh and all the festivities and hospitality that went along with that. Yeah, this all spun out of, because as Prince Regent, he was a huge admirer of her, he invited him to dinner. And over dinner, they had a great conversation. And the prince eventually ended up showing him all his Jacobite antiquities they had collected. So the two became great buddies with the Prince Regent, who would become the future George IV. And he was given permission in a royal warrant in 1817 to conduct a search for the crown jewels, the honours of Scotland. Now, we know what happened, what, what was, we think happened to the crown jewels in a previous existence, Helen. Yeah, the, you know, the crown jewels had a bit of a, a sort of a lively life. I think, you know, during, they were hidden away during the Oliver Cromwell era in the 1600s, but then they were, they were brought out again, but regularly taken to the Parliament until, of course, in 1707, the Parliament of Scotland combined with the Parliament in England to become our Parliament at Westminster. And so the Scottish regalia, the Scottish crown jewels, were not used again. So they were packed away and put in a safe place and almost forgotten about until, as we know, Liz, and sort of later on, as you say, that Scott decided he went to the governor of the castle and said, eh, do you think we could take the keys and have a look and see if we can find those jewels? They were put away, what was it, 111 years ago. <laughs> do you think we could try and find them? As you do, you know, you... You imagine your family treasures, you hide them away and then you forget where you've hidden them. And so prompted... The safe place. <laughs> exactly. So prompted by the Prince Regent, here you can just imagine it. You've got a pageant, which is what Walter Scott absolutely loved. Right? He gets all these buddies together. They get all dressed up and they go on a treasure hunt through Edinburgh Castle. <laughs> and they eventually find the big wooden box. And with great ceremony, they open the top of it. And here inside, lying in velvet, are the honours of Scotland. Wow, what a day! <laughs> What a day. And in fact, he writes about it in, in one of his books. I haven't got the quote, but he, he just almost says exactly as you said there, Liz, wow. Mm -hmm. And they could hardly breathe as the lid was lifted from the kist from the from the treasure chest. Yeah. And so his buddies think, well, he's on a roll here. Let's go for it. And they they um they write to the Prince Regent and think and suggest that Sir Walter Scott, because of the part he's played, should be given a baronessy. 
and we should become Sir Walter Scott, Baronet of Abbotsford in the county of Roxburghshire. And so there was a lot that said, no, you know, this is not the Prince Regent's place to be bestowing honours like this, but he did get it. And so he became Flavour of the Month and he, he was on the ascendancy. And so when George IV ascended to the throne, that's why he was chosen, as you see, Helen, at very short notice, to arrange this another pageant for his 1822 visit. And it was really a kind of fancy dress party. Oh, yes, it was. And I think the people who really lucked out on that and really won were the, were the producers of tartan, in inverted commas, that the, they were, the mills were going full tilt to produce all this material and make all these kilts for people to wear. Yeah, because the instruction was that everybody who came to this grand ball had to be in Highland dress. And of course, at that time, Highland dress was prescribed and it was not the dress appropriate for the Lowlanders to be wearing. So they were not at all happy at having to get all this this um, Highland tat, as they must have thought of it, and parade themselves in front of their, their king. And of course, they, what, what they did end up wearing was something that was designed by the, by the, the, the mill owners, the people who were making the tartan. It bore very little resemblance to the original Highland dress. But the fact that everybody was written about, was writing about it, it was successful in what Scott was trying to do, which was to unite Highlands and Lowlands in a new Scottish culture. So I mean, at that time, when people travelled north of the border, they wrote their will before they left home because it was thought that the Highlands were so barbaric, ignorant savages that were living up there. Yeah, and and you know this, I think I've written read somewhere that this whole event with the king was a huge PR success, you know, for Sir Walter Scott and for Scotland, as you say brought everything together and the, the memory people have of these these great gatherings, these levees in Holyrood, the, the Palace of Holyrood House, and also the assembly rooms in the new town, the great balls that went on with all the men. So, you know, from this crest of a wave where he was entertaining royalty, it must have come as a real blow to him when suddenly things began to unravel. I mean, even at the, 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 the peak of his success, his brothers showed him up because his brothers, um, his two of his younger brothers, were both, were both discredited for corruption. I mean, he basically had to pay them out of the hole that they had dug for themselves. He was writing away and, and was doing very, being very successful, but then there was the great banking crash in in the UK in eighteen twenty five when his whole business and the publishing business of of which he was a silent partner, uh, the printing business, and he was in fact their only author. It sort of went under, owing lots of money equivalent to about ten million pounds of today's money, and. Rather than declare himself bankrupt, Sir Walter Scott, you know, he's had such huge high values. He said no, he would pay back everything he owed and he started writing. And as you know, Liz, he just wrote and wrote and wrote. In fact, wrote himself to death, but he did manage to pay back a huge amount of his debt in his lifetime, as well as as well as building his fabulous house at Abbotsford. I think we've we've talked so much, Helen, that we will keep Abbotsford for a future because it's very, very worthy of a future episode in its own right. So yeah, it was a 
a sad ending. A man who had so much pride and who so much depended on his position within society should be discredited in that way that um, he did not take the easy way out, but chose to, to write his way out of the crisis. And eventually, as you say, he suffered a stroke. And it was, it's interesting that the government actually paid for a frigate to take him to Malta to try and improve his health in a warmer climate. But unfortunately, even there, um, it wasn't successful. And so when he was returning on the, the, the boat, he actually suffered another stroke, but got home to his beloved Abbotsford, where he died. So, so much more that we could talk about Sir Walter Scott, but I hope that's given people a flavour. And like you, Helen, I am going to try it on Audible and see if I can get into who is credited not only as one of Scotland's greatest writers, but the man who invented the tradition of Scotland. So he is unbelievably popular um, for that, if not for his writing. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think possibly because we're talking about writing, Liz, what about word of the week? Well, I've actually got a phrase because um, I was trying to think of something that would sum up Sir Walter Scott. And he has a phrase that's often used in Scotland if we're trying to put somebody down. He had a good conceit to himself. He wasn't he backward and coming forward. That's a good one. That's a good one. My one, Liz, is, you know, we talked about Lord Byron usurping the number one spot from Sir Walter Scott of the most popular poet. And as we would say in Scotland, Sir Walter of Sir Walter Scott, his gas was put at a peep <laughs> <laughs> with that event. So, well, Liz, thanks again for, for, to, for this episode and um, we'll see you very soon. Thanks, Helen. Okay, bye for everybody. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.